This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book One, Chapters 42 through 54. On learning of Caesar's arrival, Ariovistus sent envoys to say that, since he had come nearer, and his own safety would probably not be imperiled, he would not oppose his original request for an interview. Caesar did not spurn his offer, believing that he was now returning to reason, as he offered of his own accord, to do what he had refused before when he was asked, and he entertained a strong hope that when he learned his demands, he would, in consideration of the great favors conferred upon him by himself and the Roman people, abandon his stubborn attitude. The interview was fixed for the fourth day following. Meanwhile, envoys were frequently passing to and fro between the two generals. Ariovistus insisted that Caesar should not bring any infantry to the conference, as he was afraid he might treacherously surround him. They must each come with a mounted escort, otherwise he would not come at all. Caesar, not wishing any obstacle to stand in the way and stop the conference, and fearing to trust his life to Gallic cavalry, decided that his best plan would be to dismount all the Gallic troopers and mount the infantry of the Tenth Legion, in whom he had the greatest confidence, on their horses, so that, in case it were necessary to act, he might have an escort on whose devotion he could absolutely rely. On this, one of the soldiers of the Tenth remarked with a touch of humor, "'Caesar is better than his word.' He promised to make the tenth his bodyguard, and now he's knighting us. There was a great plain, in which was an earthen mound of considerable size, about equidistant from the camps of Ariovistus and of Caesar. To this spot they came, as agreed, to hold the conference. Caesar posted the mounted legion, which he had brought with him, four hundred paces from the mound, and Ariovistus's horsemen took up a position at the same distance. Ariovistus stipulated that he and Caesar should confer on horseback, each accompanied by ten men. When they reached the spot, Caesar began by recalling the kindness with which he himself and the Senate had treated Ariovistus. The Senate had conferred upon him the titles of king and friend, and the handsomest presents had been sent to him. Such a mark of favor, he told him, had fallen to the lot of few, and was usually bestowed only as a reward for great services. Ariovistus had no right to approach the Senate, and no title to claim anything, and it was the kindness and generosity of himself and the Senate that he owed these distinctions. Caesar explained further that between the Romans and the Aedui there were long-standing and solid grounds of intimacy. Senatorial resolutions, couched in the most complimentary terms, had repeatedly been passed in their favor, and at all times, even before they had sought our friendship, the Aedui had held the foremost position in the whole of Gaul. As a matter of settled policy, the Roman people desired their allies and friends not only to lose nothing by the connection, but to be gainers in influence, dignity, and consideration. Who then could suffer them to be robbed of what they already possessed when they sought the friendship of the Roman people? Caesar then repeated the demands which he had charged his envoys to present, that Ariovistus should not make war upon the Aedui or upon their allies, that he should restore the hostages, and that, if he were unable to send back any of the Germans to their own country, he should at all events not suffer any more to cross the Rhine. Ariovistus said little in reply to Caesar's demands, but spoke at great length about his own merits. He said that he had not crossed the Rhine spontaneously, but in response to the urgent request of the Gauls. 
he had not left home and kinsmen without great expectations and great inducements possessions which he occupied in gaul had been ceded to him by the gauls their hostages had been given voluntarily while by the rights of war he made them pay the tribute which conquerors habitually exacted from the conquered he had not made war upon the gauls the gauls had made war upon him the tribes of gaul had all come to attack him and kept the field against him and he had beaten the whole host in a single battle and crushed them if they wanted to try again he was ready for another fight if they wanted peace it was not fair of them to refuse their tribute which they had hitherto paid of their own free will the friendship of the roman people ought to be a distinction and a protection not a drawback and it was with that expectation that he had sought it if through their interference his tribute were stopped and those who had surrendered to him withdrawn from his control he would be just as ready to discard their friendship as he had been to ask for it if he continued to bring germans in large numbers into gaul he did so not for aggression but in self-defence proof was that he had not come till he was asked and that he had not attacked but only repelled attack he had come to gaul before the romans never till now had a roman army stirred outside the frontier of the province of gaul what did caesar mean by invading his dominions this part of gaul was his province just as the other was ours if he made a raid into our territory we should be wrong to give in to him similarly it was unjust of us to obstruct him in his rightful sphere caesar said that the Aedui had been given the title of brethren by the senate but he was not such an oaf he was not so ignorant of the world as not to know that in the late war with the Allobroges the Aedui had not helped the romans and that in the struggle which with the Aedui had had with himself and the sequani they had not had the benefit of roman aid he was bound to suspect that caesar under the mask of friendship was keeping his army in gaul to ruin him unless he took his departure and withdrew his army from the neighborhood he should treat him not as a friend but as an enemy in fact if he put him to the death he should be doing an acceptable service to many of the nobles and leading men of rome this he knew as a fact for he had it through their agents from their own lips and he could purchase the gratitude and friendship of them all by killing him if on the other hand he withdrew and left him in undisturbed possession of gaul he would reward him handsomely and whenever he had occasion to go to war he would fight all his battles for him and save him all trouble and risk caesar spoke at considerable length the gist of his speech being that he could not abandon his undertaking that his own principles and those of the roman people would not allow him to forsake deserving allies and that he could not admit that gaul belonged to ariovistus any more than to the roman people the arverni and the ruteni had been conquered by quintus fabius maximus but the roman people had granted them an amnesty and had not annexed their country or imposed tribute upon them if priority of occupation were to be considered the title of the roman people to dominion in gaul was unimpeachable if they were to abide by the decision of the senate gaul had a right to independence for the senate although it had conquered gaul had granted it autonomy while these questions were being argued caesar was informed that ariovistus's horsemen were moving nearer the mound riding towards our men and throwing stones and other missiles at them caesar ceased speaking went back to his men and ordered them not to retaliate for although he saw that the legion of his choice would run no risk in engaging the cavalry he did not choose by beating the enemy to let it be said that he had pledged his word and then surrounded them while a conference was going on when the news spread to the ranks that ariovistus in the course of the conference had arrogantly denied the right of the romans to be in gaul and that his cavalry had attacked our troops thereby breaking off the conference the army was inspired with an intenser enthusiasm and eagerness for battle 
Two days later, Ariovistus sent envoys to Caesar, saying that he desired to confer with him on the questions which they had begun to discuss without reaching any conclusion. Let Caesar either name another day for a conference, or, if he were disinclined to do that, send one of his officers to represent him. Caesar saw no reason for further discussion, especially as on the preceding day the Germans could not be prevented from throwing missiles at our men. While well, to send a representative would be very dangerous, and would be placing him at the mercy of savages. The best course appeared to be to send Gaius Valerius Procillus, son of Gaius Valerius Caburus, a young man of the highest character and a true gentleman, whose father had been enfranchised by Gaius Valerius Flaccus. He selected him because he could be, thoroughly trusted, and because he knew Gallic, which Ariovistus, from long practice, now spoke fluently, and also because, in his case, the Germans had no motive for foul play. With him he sent Marcus Metius, who was on friendly terms with Ariovistus. Their instructions were to hear what Ariovistus had to say and report to him. When Ariovistus caught sight of them close by, in his camp, he roared out before the troops, "'What are you coming to me for, to play the spy?' When they attempted to speak, he silenced them and put them in irons. On the same day he advanced and took up a position six miles from Caesar's camp at the foot of a hill. The following day he marched his force past Caesar's camp, and encamped two miles beyond, with the intention of cutting him off from the corn and other supplies which were being brought up from the territories of the, from the Sequani and Adui. On each of the five following days Caesar regularly led his troops in front of his camp, and kept them in line of battle, to give Ariovistus the chance of fighting if he wished. During all this time Ariovistus kept his army shut up in camp, but skirmished daily with his cavalry. The mode of fighting practiced by the German was as follows. They had six thousand cavalry, with the same number of infantry, swift runners of extraordinary courage, each one of whom had been selected by one of the cavalry out of the whole host for his own protection. The cavalry were accompanied by them in action, and regularly fell back upon their support. In case of a check, they flocked to the rescue. Whenever a trooper was severely wounded and fell from his horse, they rallied round him, and they had acquired such speed by training that if it was necessary to make a forced march or retreat rapidly, they supported themselves by the horses' manes and kept pace with them. Seeing that Ariovistus meant to keep within his camp, and being resolved to reopen communication with his convoys without delay, Caesar selected a suitable position for camp about twelve hundred paces beyond the spot where the Germans were encamped, and advanced to this position in three columns. Keeping the first and second under arms, he ordered the third to construct a camp. The site, as I have said, was about twelve hundred paces from the enemy. Ariovistus sent about sixteen thousand light infantry with all his cavalry to overawe our men and prevent them from completing the entrenchment. Nevertheless, Caesar, adhering to his original resolve, ordered the first two lines to keep the enemy at bay, while the third finished the entrenchment. When the camp was entrenched, he left two legions and a detachment of auxiliaries to hold it, and withdrew the remaining four to the larger camp. Next day Caesar, according to his regular practice, made his troops move out of both camps and, advancing a short distance from the larger one, formed a line of battle and gave the enemy an opening for attack. Seeing that they would not come out even then, he withdrew his army into camp about midday. Then at last Ariovistus sent a detachment to attack the smaller camp. Finding was kept up with spirit on both sides till evening. At sunset Ariovistus led back his forces, which had inflicted heavy loss upon the Romans and suffered heavily themselves, into camp. On inquiring from prisoners why he would not fight a decisive battle, Caesar found that the reason was this. 
Among the Germans it was customary for the matrons to tell by lots and divinations whether it would be advantageous to fight or not, and their decision was that it was not fated that the Germans should gain the victory if they fought before the new moon. Next day Caesar left detachments of adequate strength to guard the two camps, posted all his auxiliaries in view of the enemy, in front of the smaller one, with the object of creating a moral effect, as his regular infantry, compared with the enemy, were numerically rather weak, and, forming his army in three lines, advanced right up to the enemy's camp. Then at last the Germans perforce led the troops out of camp, formed them up at equal intervals in tribal groups. Herods, Marcomani, Trubocchi, Fegiones, Nometes, Seduci, and Subi, and closed their whole line with wagons and carts to do away with all hope of escape. In the wagons they placed their women, who, as they were marching out to battle, stretched out their hands and besought them with tears not to deliver them into bondage to the Romans. Caesar placed each of his generals and his quaestor in command of a legion, so that every man might feel that his courage would be recognized and engaged with the white ring which he commanded in person, for he observed that troops which faced it were the weakest part of the enemy line. When the signal was given, our men charged the enemy line with such vigor, and the enemy dashed forward so suddenly and so swiftly that there was no time to hurl the javelins at them. The men therefore dropped their javelins and fought hand to hand with swords. The Germans, however, rapidly formed in a phalanx, the usual order, and thus sustained the impact of our swords. Many of our men actually leaped onto the flanks, tore the shields out of the enemy's hand, and stabbed them from above. On the left wing the enemy's line was beaten and put to flight, but on the right their greatest numbers enabled them to press our line very hard. Noticing this, the younger Plubius Crassus, who commanded the cavalry, and was more free to observe and act than the officers who engaged in the actual fighting, sent the third line to the relief of our hard-pressed troops. Thus the battle was restored, and the enemy all turned tail and did not cease their flight until they reached the Rhine, about five miles from the battlefield. A few, trusting their strong limbs, struck out and swam across. A few found boats and saved themselves. Among the latter was Ariovistus, who found a skiff moored by the bank and escaped in it. All the rest were hunted down by our cavalry and slain. Ariovistus had two wives, one a Subin by birth, whom he had brought with him from his own country, the other a Norican a sister of King Vocio, who had been sent to him by her brother, and whom he had married in Gaul. Both of them perished in the rout. He also had two daughters, one of whom was killed, and the other captured. Gaius Valerius Procillus was being dragged along among the fugitives by his warders, fettered with three chains, when he fell in with Caesar, who was leading the cavalry in pursuit of the enemy. To see this excellent provincial, his own familiar friend, rescued from the enemy's clutches and restored to him, and to feel that fortune had not brought upon him any calamity that could lessen the pleasure of victory upon which he might fairly congratulate himself, these things gave Caesar no less pleasure than the victory itself. Procillus said that, in his own presence, they had cast lots three times to see whether he should be burned alive at once or kept for execution later, and happily the lots had so fallen that he was safe. Marcus Metius also was found and brought back to Caesar. When the result of the battle was made known beyond the Rhine, the Subi, who had reached the banks of the river, turned homewards. The Ubii, who lived in the immediate neighborhood of the Rhine, seeing their alarm, pursued them and killed a large number. Having finished two important campaigns in a single summer, Caesar led his army back to winter in the country of the Sequani a little before the usual time, and placing Labinius in command of the camp, started for Kisilpine Gaul to hold the assizes. End of Book One Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes
End of chapters 42 through 54